So this morning, this is one of the key passages for understanding the person and work of Christ. Because the most important question anyone who has ever lived will ever answer is who is Jesus Christ? And this passage answers how Christ relates to God, relates to the act of creation, relates to the continuing of creation, and the consummation of all creation, the the completion of it. But also, how Christ relates to the pinnacle of creation, humanity, made in the image of God. And this text is important because almost every heresy within the church either finds its root from this passage or finds its answers in this passage. And there's a very fine line in how you interpret this passage between orthodoxy and heresy. Right doctrine and doctrine that is not of the body of Christ, that is a different gospel altogether. And so probably the most famous and most influential of those is Arianism. And so if you don't know what that means, early on in the life of the church, all of the debates were over the person and work of Christ. Someone would rise up and say, I have a new idea about Jesus. Jesus is a great guy, but he's not fully God. Or Jesus is not fully man. Or Jesus is only some lesser kind of God. And this is essentially what uh, Arius, uh, a 4th century theologian, said. That he's the first created being. God used him to create everything else, but he's a lesser God. He's, he's a lesser being. He's not equal to God. And he gained in popularity. And so what happened is that the, this bothered the church, and the theologians came together, and there we got the Council of Nicaea. So just as a kind of side note, Probably one of the biggest falsehoods that you'll hear is that, oh, the church put our biblical books together in the Council of Nicaea. It wasn't even on the docket for the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea is about the person of Christ. So when someone says that, uh, they're wrong. So the Council of Nicaea, what is at stake at the Council of Nicaea is who is Jesus Christ? And you think, why do we make a big deal out of this? Because this is vitally important. And as we're going to see this morning in this text, if he is not fully God, everything that this text gives us an assurance for and an encouragement in means nothing. And so I want to read this morning the Nicene Creed, which was developed in Nicaea and then finalized around uh, 325 and then finalized 381 um, a couple of decades later. And why this is still important is because we still stand on these truths today. But I would argue that Arianism is more commonplace today than it was then. Arianism says that Jesus is a lesser God. Jesus is a lesser being. The official position of both Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists. There are no new, her- there are no new doctrines. They're just repackaged heresies. And this is what we're looking at this morning. So if you know this, um, read along with us. Or if you like the, the Allens who had their, their children memorize this, Dylan, no showing off. Um, I, I love how the, the children of this congregation show us up very often. But I want you to pay attention to the, to, the, to the detailed nature of this creed. Creed just means belief. I believe. Um, and the intricacy of this, we're going to draw on some of this in, in the message. It'll be up on the screen. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets." And I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. If you're tripped up by this, Catholic there just means universal. 
I want us to know this doctrine. This should be ingrained in us. And so there's a weight with this particular text. And what is at stake here? There's a weight with every text. There's always a pressure preaching the word of God. Because as a sinner, I have to try to deal with things that are perfect. That are unchanging. That are beyond our comprehension. But there is no greater pressure than this text. It's like, can you paint the Mona Lisa? You know, can you explain quantum physics? This is as important as it gets. And so Paul sets his theological foundation for the entire letter on this. Because everything that the false teachers have to offer hinges on this. Is Christ all? Is Christ enough? And so the rhythm I want you to see as we get through here, the sermon title is He Is. And the repetition through here is He Is. He Is. He Is. The other repetition we see is and. He is and. He is and, and, and. Paul does not stop in verse 15. And the other repetition we're going to see this morning is all things. All. The emphasis on all. He is sovereign over all. He is all. Everything that the world needs, everything that was needed to create the earth, everything that is needed for our salvation, everything that is needed to bring everything into into reconciliation. He is. Nothing lacking, nothing added. I want you to lean in this morning. Take notes and ponder these things. Because what we understand about this text hinges the rest of our, our, our Christian faith. Do we believe in the Christ of the Bible? Or do we believe in the Christ of the cults? And I'll tell you just a little hint. If you can get this passage... You have an answer to the door-to-door snake oil salesman who want to tell you about Jehovah God. If you know this passage, you can have a conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses and get them to read it in context, text, teach them hermeneutics. There is no answer to this when you understand it for what it is. But if you take it out of context, we become Arius and we have a different Jesus and a different God. So I want you to know how to work through this text and know how to explain what you believe. So... Uh, I know that normally you guys come here for the uh, warm and fuzzies, and I know that's what I'm known for, Uh, but this morning is not going to be much of that. Yes, that was sarcasm. (laughs) This morning, all I can do is just declare who Jesus is, and all I want you to do is digest it. So if you need that extra cup of coffee, and you need your Bibles, we're going to be flipping through a lot, so... um, A lot of it's going to be on the screen. What I want you to do this morning is to write down these references and and, and consider this. We're going to move through quickly because we've got a lot to cover. So let me open us up by reading Colossians chapter 1. One of the most beautiful and amazing and intimidating passages in all of Scripture. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. God of all creation, King of kings, Lord of lords, Father, Son, Spirit, that you would reveal yourself to us makes no sense that you would shed your love on us makes even less sense. Lord, help us in this time to approach this text with reverence and awe. The glory of Jesus Christ, of the excellencies that we can't even begin to imagine. And also approach it in celebration. Because if we are in Him, He is the one who holds us. He is our Savior. He is our hope. He is our redemption. He is our life. And if we do not know him, let us 
let those here tremble because he will judge them according to their works, not his. May we be a people who declares the excellencies of Christ, that this is good news, that there is peace by the blood of his cross, and only because he is God in fullness, and only because he is man in fullness. And we, as sinful men, ever have hope to be reconciled to a holy God. And Lord, I ask that your servant, this weak sinner, would give you all the glory and honor and praise. And may your people be edified and you be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This great confession, this great creed, this is what I believe, this is what I confess, this is who Christ is, this is worthy to commit to memory. And being showed up again, the gills have taught this to Violet. And Violet knows this verbatim. You can test her on it later. She'll blow you guys away, I promise. This is so important that we should have this rooted in our hearts. And what a joy to be in a congregation that roots this in, their, in our children. So let's recap last week. I want to pick up in verse 12. So last week when Paul talks about cultivating gospel fruit, he tells them what, they, what he desires for them. Spiritual wisdom and a life that is lived out for Christ. And how is that all possible? He tells them to thank the Father for what he has done through the Son. Verse 12. Give thank, giving thanks to the Father. What has the Father done? He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom, the beloved Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now this morning, who is that Son? Last week, the life of the church in Colossae and the life of the church throughout eternity is based on the work of the Father through the Son. In case there's any questions, in case there's any false teachers among you, in case you're listening to any false gospels, who is the Son? Here is who the Son is. He is the image, the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now this verse has two statements about Christ. And they are two of the most highly debated and two of the most difficult to explain, but the two that the rest of this passage hinge on. So we're going to spend some time in it here. He is the image, the invisible God. What does Paul mean by image? The word image means likeness, means representation, it means reflection. And so we know that in his humanity, he's made in the image of God, as we all are, but it can't just be that. Because this is a phrase that is applied to no one else anywhere else. He is the image of the invisible God. How can you make an image of something that is invisible, of someone who is invisible? And then on top of that, in our study of Deuteronomy, we know that God again and again and again hates graven images. He hates images of false gods and forbids images of himself. So how can he, the Son, be the image of the invisible God? Because God is limitless. God is endless. And he cannot be he cannot be understood in any physical image, any visible object. Yet the sun makes him manifest. The sun makes him visible. By seeing the sun, you see God. Jesus told us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But how? Because we know that an infinite God cannot be contained in human flesh. And this is where people go off the rails, and this is where the problems begin. Because we begin to focus on Jesus' humanity and think, well, if we see, it can't be that this man who has flesh and bones and hair and walks around on earth is the fullness of God in that visible form. So this is where it gets a little, a little tricky. And this is what was at the heart of, of, of Nicaea. How do we explain this? How do we explain who he is? Because in, in his humanity, he's made in the image of God and he's still perfect in that. But in his deity... He shares in the essence and substance of the Father. This, there's one term, there's the root of Nicaea, homoousios, the same substance. The Son is the same substance as the Father, yet while he dwells bodily, he reflects all of the attributes of, of the eternal God perfectly. And so he, he reflects him. 
and who he is. And at the same time, in a way, we can never understand the eternal God takes on flesh and remains God. And becomes the image of an invisible God that no one has ever seen, but yet is truly man and walks around. But in his life and in his teaching, we see God. He makes him manifest. He makes something that is invisible visible. And this is what is the, the, the debate here. And this is what, was, what led Arius astray. This, this image, and, and especially firstborn, and we'll get there in a moment. So I want to look at a couple passages. John 1.18, we read it earlier. No one has ever seen God. So this is, you know, we got to break this down in the Greek here is really tough. But no one has ever seen God, the only God. So there's one God. No one's ever seen him. God's invisible. But there's someone who's at, the, who's at the Father's side. The Son is at the Father's side. He, the Son, has made him, the Father, speaking of the invisible God, known. Who he is, he's the Son. What he does, he makes the Father known. That's why Jesus told his disciples again and again, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Don't just see with your eyes. This is a spiritual foresight for those who have eyes to see. When they see Christ, when they come to know him, they come to know the Father because he makes him manifest. He makes him visible to them, not in a way that our temporal eyes can understand, but in a way that our spiritual eyes comprehend and rejoice in. This is what he makes manifest. We also see in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He being Christ, all of Hebrews chapter 1, all of Hebrews is about Christ, but he the radiance of his glory, of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Nothing distorted, nothing missing, the exact imprint. And we're going to get into this. And he upholds the universe by the, world of his, by the word of his power. We'll, we'll get there in verse 17. But what's amazing about this is that this image that the Son reflects of the Father also is given to us. Look at chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 10. And, speaking of the new creation, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, in birth, we are image bearers of God. But in Christ, we are image bearers of his holiness and his righteousness. We are bearing the image of Christ. And as the new man, we are now brought into a reflection of a holy God, which is, should just blow our minds. What is attributed to the Son, those who are united in Him, is also attributed to them. does not make us gods, but make us, makes us better images of God. makes us reflect Him better because now we have His righteousness. Now we look more like Him. And that is the goal of the church in Colossae. Not to listen to these outside voices, but to know that you are in Christ. Christ is all, and in him, the one who bears the image of the invisible God, you bear his image. Bring that out to the world. That is the power of the gospel, the invisible God made, made visible in Christ, who makes us visible to one another and to the world because of what he has done in us. That's why this matters for us. That's why we must be sure in what we believe, because it affects how we walk around every day and who we know ourselves to be, our very identity. Now, the image is the easy one, believe it or not. The difficult one is firstborn. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, these two terms are in tandem, and the second modifies the first. And this is a loaded term. This is where Arius went astray. This is where the Jehovah's Witnesses go, to, go astray. If the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, they love verse 15, and they never read on. Got to think about this. He's the firstborn of all creation. This is a metaphorical term, not literal. And I'm going to make that case in just a moment. And so for us to understand, the emphasis is on the firstness, not the bornness. The emphasis is on the firstness, not the bornness. What happens, and the big mistake here is the focus on the born. Well, he had a birth, so he's, so he's created, so he's less of a God. The sense of this term firstborn is first in rank. This is, uh, it, this is position. This is primacy. And when you hear the term firstborn, if, if you've been in our Deuteronomy study for the past couple weeks, we talk about firstborn often. It brings to mind a birthright. It, it brings to mind uh, a family, a legacy. There's a prominence here in the firstborn. There is a, 
a status here that no one else in the family bears. This is what Paul is trying to get across. In short, what does it mean to be the firstborn of all creation? It means the father's heir. If you want to boil this down to, in the shortest thing, what does this mean? It means the father's heir. It means there's no one else in this family. It means there's no one else who bears the name of, of the father who shares what the son shares. And so the, sh- the son and the father have this unique relationship. Now, it's kind of like the, um, the a proud father who says, this is my firstborn. He's not thinking about the birth. He's thinking about this is my first. This is the, 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 the first born to me. This is the, the one who will bear my name. This is the one who will continue my legacy. And that's more of what's going on here. So I want to look at the, the range of this word quickly and just run through a few of these. Uh, Exodus chapter 4. When uh, Moses is standing before Pharaoh, God tells Moses what to tell Pharaoh. Here's what God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now we're not talking about physical birth here. This is metaphorical. Israel is my primary objective. Israel is first in my mind. I will care for them because they are my inheritance. They are associated with me. And so I put them in the place of prominence, firstborn. Also, the term speaks of consecration. Look at Exodus 13. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So it also speaks of consecration. Those who are first are to be consecrated and devoted to God. The firstborn here is in a special place, the heir of the Father, but also consecrated to God for a special purpose. And then the beautiful Messianic Psalm 89. We read this this morning in our, in our corporate prayer. But look at the language here, written hundreds of years before Christ, spoken of, of the throne of David that would go on forever. And, and one, one offspring, one being br- uh, brought up above the rest. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. But look at this. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Leave that up there. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is what it means to be firstborn, the firstborn of all creation. Him, the king, higher than any other king, higher than any other man, I will make him that. He didn't have to be born to do that. I bestowed it upon him. Because the moment he took on flesh, he became my firstborn. He became my anointed king. He became the one who would take over the throne of David and rule forever. That is what Paul is trying to accomplish here. I want you to in a way that our human minds can never understand and we can never articulate. This is my chosen one. This is my firstborn. This is my king. And he took on flesh so he could rule forever in righteousness. We also see this in Hebrews chapter 1. If you would, turn there. I wish I could spend more time in this. um, And i got to move faster. point of Hebrews chapter 1 shows how Christ fulfills everything from the Old Testament. And how he speaks through the Son. I just want to pull out a couple things. Long ago at many times, 1-1, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but there's a transition. This is what God did before. This is what God's doing now. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Who is the Son? The one who is appointed the heir of all things. The, the Father's heir and through whom also he created the world. The heir and the creator. Same thing Paul's saying. Look at the language that happens a little bit later. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say? So there's a, there a debate about the place of angels and, and humans, and, and this is still the, the case of some cults today, that Jesus is just a higher angel. He's the archangel Michael. Well, read Hebrews, and that blows that out of the water. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. He can't be an angel and be worshipped by the angels. But look at the language. When he brings the firstborn into the world. So what's that to make us think of? The incarnation. He is the image of the invisible God. He is eternal. He is very God. But he is the firstborn of all creation. He is very man. 
And so by these two terms, we see that he is eternal and incarnate. That's what Paul is trying to get across here, eternal and incarnate. He is image and he is firstborn. Why make a big deal out of this? Why do we just spend 20 minutes on this? Because not only does this cause a lot of controversy, but this causes a lot of heresy. Because if you don't understand image and you don't understand firstborn, you end up worshiping another creature besides God. You end up exalting someone else who is not God. You end up making Jesus, God made flesh, the eternal son of God, less than who he is, and it is blasphemous. It leads to error. And it leads to a God who cannot save, and it leads to hell. This is why this is vitally important. It was vitally important to Colossae. It is vitally important to us. And anticipating this, Paul clarifies the primacy by showing his place in creation. Just so you get this. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, how do we know? Let me give you further proof. Verse 16. For by him all things were created. You cannot be created and create all things. Law of non-contradiction. It does not work. Because by him all things were created. He's the means for creation. He is how everything came into being. For by him all things were created. One of the most important things we can do in our study of the Bible is how do we define all? Let me give you an example. If I say, hey, let's all go to lunch after this. We understand this is an open invitation to who's in the room. But does the all apply to all of Sanford, all of the United States, all of the world? Or if I pull five people aside and say, hey, let's all go to lunch, does it still apply to everyone in the room? We must define our alls. And this happens often. Jesus died for all, right? Yes, he did. He died for all his own. We must define these things because we can't just assume that you mean the same thing as I mean when I say all. And it seems simple, but so often people are tripped up on this. But what we need to understand in this text is when he says all, it means all. And the Greek is even more emphatic. It's just all. He is over all. All, all, all. It is repeated so you get the hint. There is no little sliver of creation in which he is not Lord. There is no little sliver of creation which he did not create. There is nothing which is not under his sovereignty. And this list here is meant to be exhaustive, so you get that. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth. This is all created things. The stuff up there, the stuff down here, everything. Visible and invisible. The stuff we see and the stuff we don't even know is there. He created that too. And if you think maybe there's some kind of power, the evil... I I, I hate when I hear Christians or people calling themselves Christians try to talk like evil is outside of God's control. What kind of God do you have if there is a throne or dominion or a power that is outside of his control? How can you trust a God who is powerless against evil? That's why Paul says this here. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These are all spiritual things in the spiritual realm. What do these terms mean? We don't know. But the point is, If there's something out there, he made it. Thrones, yep, made those two. Powers, yep, made those two. Dominions, yep, made those two. Angels, demons, it's like a little kid who walks around. Did God make the tree? Yep. Did God make the ground? Yep. Did God make the stuff we can't see? Yes, he did. And what is the point of giving you that whole list? Like what we saw in John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Nothing, nothing missing. What's the point? There's nothing lacking. There's nothing left out. There's nothing outside of his control. Nothing. But why say this? Because to Colossae, the church that has these outside voices coming in, but also to us, there's nothing in the spiritual realm There's nothing mystical. There's nothing going on out there that he did not make and rule and does not rule over. That should be an encouragement. Don't listen to these outside forces trying to give you higher wisdom and trying to get you to worship other things and bring other things in because he made them all. They bow down to him. Don't bow down to them. He made them. They're under his control and for his purposes. Um, Dick Lucas, who's a great commentator and who's got a bad comic book bully name, um, says two things 
sorry. Um, he says that there are neither treasure, they, they have neither treasures to give you or terrors to inflict on you. They have neither treasures to give you nor terrors to inflict on you. What's the point of these thrones and dominions and all this stuff? They can't give you anything. And they can't do anything to you. So stop worrying about them. Stop talking about them. Because if you are in Christ, he rules over them. He created them. He can squash them. That is meant to be a challenge and an encouragement to the church at Colossae. Because all these things, they're made through him and for him. The king of all creation, by his power, by his glory, should bring to mind Romans 11.36. If you can memorize anything when you're discouraged and trying to understand the nature of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's right. Why was everything made? For the Father to give it to the Son. We're witnessing the inheritance from Father to Son. It was all made through him and for him. This is the father. This is a proud father showing off a son in a very humanistic form. We, we, we think that all this creation is for us. Oh, God so loved the world that you know, he, he, he made it and he wants us to be in relationship with him. And, and we think that we're, he's lacking something without us. All this is for Christ. Everything the father did was to give it to Christ so that he would be exalted, that he would be given glory. All this, we're just brought into this and we receive the blessing of a father giving a world to his son. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is before all things. This is literally in the front of. It's, it's his placement. Before anything was, was created, before all things ever existed, he has pre-existence. Before existence, he was. He is before all things. All what does all mean? See verse 16. Everything. He is before everything. But he's not just before them. He also supports them. In, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Creator, sustainer. This word hold, it means to put together. It means to put together, to organize in such a way that it will not come apart. Because it's not just put together. It's not just held together, it is organized together, and it is kept together, and it endures together. He created it. He sustains it. And he could only do that if he was before it all. So this looks back. He's the Lord of creation. It looks now. He's the Lord of sustenation, sustains all things. And it also looks forward. He's the Lord of consummation, because if he holds it, he's also got a plan for it. Creator, sustainer, founder, and perfecter of our world and also our faith. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body. Look at this, and, 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 and he is before all things, and, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the church, and, 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 as if it isn't enough, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. In case anyone wants to try to find a loophole, in case anyone wants to try to under, undermine this, let's keep laying it on. And he is the head, the headship, Head means it's literally over. The head is over the body. But the head also represents the body. The head also leads the body. The head also dictates what the body does. He is the head over the body. And he unifies it and fills it. Look at Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Talking about the risen king in, in the beginning of Hebrews, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1. And this risen king who the father raised from the grave. Why did the father raise him from the grave and what is he doing now? And he put him, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. His fullness fills us. He is the head of the church. The same power that holds the world together holds the church together. The same power that holds the world together, if you are in him, he holds you together. Do we ever think about that? Do we ever think about the God of the universe who created all things? Nothing was made without him. By putting your trust in him, he holds you together. The same power that keeps the world spinning on its axis, that keeps the seasons coming, that keeps the, the flowers blooming, keeps breath in your lungs. And by faith, hallelujah, and by faith in him, he preserves your 
your very life forever. How do we know that he can hold us? Because he holds the world. And when we doubt that he can hold us, we're doubting his power over all things. This is meant to be emboldening to the church in Colossae and emboldening to us. He is the head over the body. Or the head of the body, the church. These things are synonymous. The body, the church. This is a living metaphor. This is not a building. This is not a system. These are living saints. A living organism with a living head. And you're, you, you can't live without your head. The church without Christ is like us without our head. And did you know that every living thing has only one head? There's not a thing on this planet that has more than one head. This is to be an example that there can only be one leading force in each creature, in each living thing. And I have to steal this from H.B. Charles because it's too good not to, not to repeat. H.B. Charles says that anything without a head is dead, and anything with two heads is a monster. We are a church under one head. We are not dead because our head is alive. And if anyone else tries to put themselves as another head, they become a monster. So we have to have Christ in his headship in the right place. He is alive. That's why his resurrection is important. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And in him, we are new creatures so that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. Look at Romans 8, 29. The beginning of resurrected humanity. God's plan from all eternity for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order That's that image language again. The image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning of resurrected humanity so that he might be the first among many brothers. Here this firstborn term comes in again. Because it's not enough that he be firstborn of creation. That would be fine. But he must also be firstborn of recreation. He must also be firstborn of those who come to new life out of the grave. He must conquer death for them, so he must be firstborn unto life. And our whole process of salvation that we see in Romans 8 is possible because of his resurrection. He is the incarnate son, the firstborn. But he is also the new Adam, the firstborn from the dead. The first of new life and redeemed humanity. And his resurrection assures our resurrection. And his resurrection was accomplished so that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything he might be preeminent. Not just first in creation, preeminent. um, Above all, before all. Not just before creation, but before new creation. Before any redemption should happen, he must be first in that as well so that he receives the glory in all things. That there is no glory that he does not receive. He must be preeminent in all things. He must be the first in our all thing. It's first in all things. And this is the beauty of the church. Our head is over us, but he also went before us, so that now we could be knit to him. And as we use this body metaphor within the church, we are knit to a living head. Shoulders, arms, elbows, hands. Because our head lives, we live. Because he is resurrected to new life, we are resurrected to new new life. Union with Christ means so much because of who he is. The same creator of all is the redeemer of all who are united to him and who are knit to him forever. He is to be preeminent in all things. But how can this be? Unless he's God, because only God can be first in all things, right? Paul anticipates this. Look what he says next. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in case you forgot, in him, in this flesh that you saw walk around, who who slept, who cried, who ate, in him was the fullness of God. God must be first in all things. He cannot be simply a man and be first in all things. That's why Paul has to reiterate the fullness Of God is in him. For because in his being, he's the fullness. Nothing lost, nothing added, not a different type of God, not a lesser God, the fullness of the true God. This sub theme that we see throughout the letter of Colossians. 
The false teachers who come in and say there's a greater fullness, there's a greater knowledge that you need. And there are people in our culture that tell us you need more than Christ. You need to do more. You need to think more. There's higher ideas. I've got some new stuff to tell you. No, you don't. Christ is the fullness. You cannot add to full. And he is God. You cannot take away from full either. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is how he is the image. It's God's pleasure to make his fullness dwell in human form. That is the image that reflects him, the fullness of God in flesh, eternal and incarnate. It pleased the Father. We're still looking back to verse 12. We're thanking the Father for what he has done for us in Christ, in the Son. And this, in this explanation of the Son, we see the pleasure of God, the Father who sent his Son to make him known and dwell in pleasure. This is God's joy to take on flesh. Anyone who tells you that the gospel's God's plan B, and since we screwed it up, he had to send his his son, and so now God's trying to fix what what we messed up. This is plan A. This is not God was was caught off guard and now he's got to throw something together after the fact. This is plan A. My son will be glorified more because in the midst of the sin, in the wickedness, he is good, he is righteous, and he will conquer it all on the cross. That pleases God to take on flesh and walk among us. And we benefit from it. John 1.16, we read this earlier, but it's helpful to draw this in. The fullness of God in man, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. How is it that my sins can be atoned for? How is it that a wicked sinner like me can be saved? Because the fullness of God's mercy The fullness of God's grace, the fullness of God's love dwelt in a man who hung on a tree for me. That is how we receive grace upon grace because he is grace unending, greater than all of our sins. Jesus, our Savior, is the fullness of God. And in him we have the fullness of grace and salvation. And, 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 verse 20, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things. And as if the person of the Son wasn't enough. It's, it's incredible. As if the one who made the earth wasn't enough. It's amazing. If the, if the one who resurrected wasn't enough, also amazing. And through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Reconcile all things. We tend to think of the resurrection and the cross as just about us. You notice the, the, a trend here, how selfish we can be? But the, the cross reconciles all things, all things, only through him. But wait, there's more. Why deity and why humanity? Why must this happen? Because only one who is fully God and also fully man can reconcile all of God's creation and all of, of humanity in one person and in one act. He is all. He is the reconciler. This word to reconcile, reconciliate, means to bring together again. Bring together what was, what was broken, what was lost. Why do things need to be brought together? No one is ever going to tell you that things are as they should be. Everyone has an opinion of how things could be better. You look around and you see murder and you see hurt and you see and, and you see pain, and you see sin, and you see all those things. Something's not right with the world. They need to be brought back together. And everyone has their own idea. But there is only one who can bring all things together. Who can reconcile all things to put back together what was broken. Only the God who created it can recreate it. Only God who made it perfect can remake it perfect. This is why it is so important. He's a reconcile all things to himself. He is the cause, but also the destination. He is the power that makes it possible, but also its purpose. He's the one who does it and brings it all to himself so that he might receive the glory. All things. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. The death and resurrection of Christ did not just reconcile you and me to him. It reconciled all things to him. 
It is the ministry of reconciliation that the entire world depends on. And we are called into that ministry. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I love this passage. What does that mean for us? Okay, Christ is the reconciler. That's great. And this is why we must understand union with Christ. If we are united with Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Great. I'm, I'm on board. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. New creation. Good. Got it. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So what does that mean? Christ reconciling all things to himself includes us. When a sinner repents and comes home, the world is being reconciled. When the gospel goes out and bears fruit, the world is being reconciled. When the saints come home, when we do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God, we live as those who have eternity in a reconciled kingdom, yet still walk in a fallen one. Keep going. Is there more to that? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of, of, of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. The ministry of reconciliation was initiated at the cross and began at the cross, and we come out of the cross. We implore you on behalf of God, or on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what the gospel message is. You're a sinner. You need to be recon reconciled to God. And how can we do that? One of the most beautiful verses in all scripture. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Reconciliation is God's righteousness, taking on flesh, dying on the cross, rising again, that we might become righteous. And as we walk around as ministers of reconciliation, we are ministers of God's righteousness because of what Christ has done. And that is what peace means. Apart from Christ's finished work on the cross, there is no peace. That is peace. That is eternal peace. In all things, he will reconcile, whether on earth and in heaven, that exhaustive list from earlier, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is what peace means. It means all heaven and earth reconciled by the blood of the cross. The finished work of Christ. It means true peace. It's the answer to all heaven and earth. And it only can happen by the blood of the cross. So why is it when we think about who we are, why do we wear cross pendants? And why do we preach the cross? Why do we sing songs about the cross? It is essential. The, the blood of Christ is necessary for everything else. That's why when you know, we design a new logo, we want the cross to be the center of everything because the cross is the center of everything we do. Some of you may have seen the logo. It may be up there. There you go. Um, but thinking about the, the cross being the center of everything we do because that means peace for the whole earth. If you trust in Christ, you may have trials in this life, but it means peace for eternity. It means the peace that passes understanding. It means that no matter what anyone does to you, no matter the thrones or powers or dominions that are out there, you have peace in Christ Jesus, and they can't take that from you. He created them. He will destroy them. We know how the cross relates to our salvation, but do we know how the cross relates to all of creation? Do we know that the cross was victory over the war? Death was destroyed. He won the war on the cross. A little sneak preview. Look at chapter 2, 14 and 15. Same book. Yes, he canceled our debt on the cross. By canceling the, our record of debt that, that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But look what else he did on the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, same ones we're talking about in verse 16, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross means triumphing over death, over all of these powers, over everything that could ever come against him. And the resurrection is the victory lap. And his ascension is his coronation of king, solidifying his reign over all things and his conquering over everything evil. And his second coming is the consummation of all things. All of earth stands in anticipation for him to come again. When he comes, the final battle will be fought. The victory is already won. And peace will be in new, the new heavens and the new earth forever. But those of us who are in Christ now 
have that peace now. And you can only know that peace by the blood of the cross, by what he accomplished on the cross. The Lord of creation became the Lord of our salvation at the cross. That is why this passage is so important to Colossae, to us. Because at it, he initiated new creation, recreating everything, reconciling everything in and of himself. So next week, we're going to look at what that reconciliation means for the readers. Spend time on that, verses 20 to 1 to 29. But a quick recap. just want to spend some time and think about this. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? And what has he done? Why is this important? Who is Jesus Christ? He is eternal and incarnate. Who is Jesus Christ? He is pre-existent and preeminent. He is before all and he is over all. Who is Jesus Christ? He is creator and redeemer. Who is Jesus Christ? He is reconciler and restorer. And all things are in him, through him, and for him. What's the point of all this? Why spend so much time on this? Why beat this to death? Because this is the drum I'm going to keep beating until I die. But other than that, it's to know that Christ Jesus is Lord. That he is supreme over all creation. And he is sufficient for all salvation. He is supreme over all creation, sufficient for all salvation. He's lacking nothing, needing nothing. In him we will praise forever to the glory of his name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We praise your mighty name. God of all creation. Lord over all. Savior of all who put their trust in you. Thank you for the message of the Son. Your image firstborn like us to redeem us, that he might be glorified through us. Let us not take lightly the ministry of reconciliation. Let us stand boldly on this gospel proclamation that in him it is finished on the cross. And the blood of the cross is peace to the entire creation. All heaven and all earth need the blood of the Savior. We glorify his name. He is he is. And I pray that we leave this place today singing his praises, standing boldly in him. And that if you do not know him, that you turn to him because there is no peace without him. There is no life without him. There is no hope without him. He has conquered everything. There is no, nothing outside of his power. But if you are outside of him, you are subject to all of those thrones and rulers and dominions and, and powers that Paul told them not to worry about. But in him, you have nothing to fear. They cannot give you anything. They cannot take anything from you. Because you have fullness in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it is in his name I pray. Amen.